This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. I am Trevor, nevertheless, Paul. Paul, how are you doing today? <laughs> doing good. I'm doing good. I like nevertheless. I think that one sounds about right. <laughs> oh, boy. Let's see. I'll, I'll have to make sure these are not all uh, diminishing uh, conjunctions oh, yeah. or things like that. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I can take it. I can take it. <laughs> I got you. Well, listeners, it is so nice to be with you. It is uh, hopefully a, a nice December morning, wherever you are. We are recording this in November on our end, but we know when we're going to release it. And we deliberately kind of lined things up to be doing an Emily Dickinson podcast for uh, for December listening. Why? I don't know. I, I might vaguely be able to answer that question. I don't think of her as a winter poet. I don't think of her as a Christmas poet. I do think of her as a December silence poet in some ways, though. Some of her poems just kind of have that, that feel f- to me. And, that, and not anything specific. None of the poems I'm going to talk about today are are certainly December-centric. But there's... There's a, a slight, but also vague and sometimes mysterious religion in her poetry. Mm-hmm. There's nature. There is a reflective aspect to it. Sometimes even a bit of a of a sense of that. You know, if you walk outside on a December on a bright December morning when there's no sound, that sometimes feels right to me for Emily mm-hmm. Dickinson. It could be that. This is the time of year when we often studied her in school when I was younger. And that's why she's a December right. kind of poet for me. So I'm excited to talk about Emily Dickinson today. Um, but before we get there, how are you doing, Paul? And what are you reading? I'm doing well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to today's conversation as well. Um, but yeah, right now I am reading. I think I t- told you in a previous episode that I was involved in this group read for the Levant trilogy with Olivia Manning, <laughs> or by Olivia Manning. And kind of joked because Kim McNeil roped me into it after we had done the Balkan trilogy last year. And, uh, you know, like I said, I was joking because I, I am more than happy to do it. And I have just once again been loving dipping back into mm-hmm. Manning's work. She's just so good. Um, I've talked about her, so I won't go into too much detail. But it's just so nice to be back, you know, spending some time with Guy and Harriet Pringle, even though Guy drives me nuts most of the time when I'm reading about him. But, you know, in this this time around, they're in Egypt. And I just wanted to touch on one of the things I've noticed reading this, you know, this second trilogy is just how good Manning is at capturing not only the major major historical events that are going on, but she does it through the lens of these personal impacts. And part of the way she does that so well is her excellent descriptions. She's just so good, whether it's nature or people at describing, you know, describing these scenes. So I I had a couple here that I was just going to touch on. So there's one where um, one of the characters is standing on a rooftop and she's looking out over Egypt. And so it says conscious of daring. She stood by the rail and looked toward Giza, half expecting to see the defeated army wandering in past Mina house, but there was no army. She saw nothing but the pyramids that were visible only in early morning and at sunset looking as small as the little metal pyramids that were used as pencil sharpeners. The morning was so still, it did not relate to war. The traffic had not started up, and she could hear, from a hundred yards below her, the bell of a camel and the slap of the camel driver's bare feet. 
She moved round the roof, astonished by the extent and clarity of the view in this early sunlight. Soon the town would be hidden under heat, but now she could see the small houses washing, like a sea of curdled foam, up to the cliff face of the Makatam Hills. Above them, Muhammad Ali's alabaster mosque, uniquely white in this sand-colored city, sat with minarets pricked like a fat, white, watchful cat. So I don't know, that part just really struck me. Um, you know, everything going on around her, she expects to see an army come down the road at any minute, but right now there's just this peaceful moment. And I especially like the line, the morning was so still, it did not relate to war. Just, I don't know, something about that just really stopped me in my tracks. Um, and then just a couple of quick descriptions she had about people. So there's one, and this one's a little more humorous. She says, a very subdued Hassan put down Gibbon's soup and Gibbon bent to it, his nose just above the plate. It was a very large nose, the cheeks falling back so sharply that from the front, Gibbon's face looked all nose. His mouth was small, and his weak, pinkish eyes seemed colorless behind brass-rimmed glasses. And so I, I kind of like that. It just looked like sounded like almost like a Dickens character, you know, with all nose, and you just see him slurping up his soup. And then one more, just this, this other character, she says, He was, she thought, like some heavy object, a suitcase or parcel an impediment that his friends put down when they wanted to cut and run. So just a couple of little bits there, but overall it's just been so nice to revisit these characters and these settings. Um, so yeah, I thought I'd touch on that. And then the other thing real quickly that I'm reading, I, I am keeping my promise to myself and probably to <laughs> nobody else who cares, but I did start <laughs> Don Quixote a uh, couple hundred pages in. Oh man. Oh, wow. It's so readable. Like I, I kind of hate that word, but it, I've been amazed at how my wife had told me that it's kind of a page turner and, and I, not that I didn't believe her, but yeah, I've been surprised. Just it goes relatively short chapters and each one is like this little event, this little, sometimes funny, sometimes it's a battle, whatever, but it keeps you reading. It, it's very interesting to see. And I had always had this um, idea in my head that I know it's divided into basically two books that came out, you know, five years apart. And I'd always had the idea that maybe the second book was not as highly regarded, but I've been happy to hear from several people that they actually prefer the second book and think mm. it's even stronger. So I, that makes me excited as I head into, you know, my, my potential holiday reading that we talked about, <laughs> that it won't be like a letdown in the second book or anything. So anyway, that, that's what I've been reading. It's been a nice balance to kind of jump back and forth between those two. Nice. Um, I, I've never, I don't know very much about Don Quixote. I mean, the, the general things, you know, yeah. uh, Pancho, Sanchez, and is it Sanchez? Mm. Anyway, mm -hmm. and the windmills and, you know, to dream the impossible dream, which I'm sure you, you've got going through your head every time you, you sit down to, to read, right? Those lyrics. Exactly. And... Exactly. Singing it to myself. <laughs> Straight from the pages, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. But that's really cool. I'm glad you get you're liking it. How long is your edition? When you say a couple hundred pages, I want to know if you're like halfway done or if you're no. a quarter of the way done. I think closer to a quarter. I I don't know with endnotes and everything. I believe it's somewhere in the eight to nine hundred page hmm. realm. So I think I am right around two hundred. So probably roughly a quarter of the way in. Yeah. So I'll just like you. I had some vague ideas. Yeah. I mean, you know, kind of the same stuff you just mentioned but I didn't honestly know a whole lot going into it either. And so I've been surprised how many of the well-known scenes have already popped up in the first couple <laughs> hundred pages. And so it's really intriguing to me. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I don't, I don't know where it's going to go. So I'll report back, but 
yeah it's been nice. fun so far way to go yeah. though on on getting going on your holiday reading <laughs> oh, and, thank and, you. yeah and i i mean i i don't know how big of a role i may have played that day when you were you know kind of wrestled and had uh, uh, the Levant trilogy shoved into your face uh, <laughs> when you were trying to avert your eyes and right. you know, not now, no, no. And we, we all said, no, this is it. Look yeah. at Paul. Maybe it wasn't quite that. Maybe it was like, just, you know, more like Lucifer or something like Paul. Exactly. Paul. That's how I felt my role was actually posting pictures of the NYRB classics edition. Mm-hmm. I would like to think I'm not weak, but I think it's more a fact that all of you are so uh, well-respected <laughs> and, and so kind about it. It's always done in such a nice spirit. But yeah, I do always kind of joke. It's kind of like a little bit of a pusher. You know, the first one's free kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it's cool that you're able to do both. And that sounds like you're enjoying both of them. I am. And, and uh, I often, I don't necessarily always read a couple books at the same time, but it's been actually really nice because... I think Kim, she's so organized. She has this nice like 18 to 20 page schedule for the Levant trilogy that she printed out. And so I, when I did the Balkan trilogy with her, I kind of joked because I was cheating. I read way ahead. Um, with this one, I've been good <laughs> and I've been sticking to her schedule and it's made it actually really easy to kind of skip back and forth. I'll just sit down and in one reading, you know, it's only 15, 18 pages and, and read the yeah. Levant trilogy. And then later in the night or whatever, I can kind of dip into Don Quixote. So yeah, it's actually, it's worked out nicely. That's what, that's what I've been doing with my books of betterment list Mm -hmm. is so that it never becomes something where I'm like, well, I'll read that later, which is what it was when I first made it. I I read a book and then, and then I read, you know, a bunch of other things and never get back to it. So I said, you know, 20, 25 minutes a day and I might read more and I might choose to just just read that one for a while, but it allows me to read other things and still make progress. And yeah, it's, it's manageable in my mind. It, I don't put things down as often and leave them unfinished. Yeah. But. I think that flexibility you just mentioned is the key part of it. If you decide you want to read more, like I don't think it should be kind of some prescriptive thing, at least for my, the way my mind works, I, I would start to think of that more as an assignment. But yeah, like you said, mm-hmm. if you want to read a little less one day and a little more the next or whatever. So yeah. I know Adam Moody, who we both talked to quite a bit on Twitter did that with Proust where he broke it down. I don't remember exactly how many pages or minutes he did per day, but I know he felt like that really worked well for him on something like Proust where he could kind of sit there and digest for a little while afterwards and break it into, you know, bite-sized chunks or however you want to say it. So yeah, it has been interesting way to do it, but yeah. What have you been reading these days? All right. So uh, we probably should have started with me. Mine are kind of, uh, well, one's a rehash of of yours. I started Matrix by Lauren Groff. Um, th- this this last week, and I maybe get where you're coming from. Like, it feels quite different from her usual fare, and yet the writing's there and the intrigue. But I am not far enough that I have the first clue where this is going. I've I've gotten maybe fifty, sixty pages under my belt, and it's not a long book, but it's still super introductory. Yeah, <laughs> to, you know, she's gotten to the to the convent. She has. Um, uh, met with some people trying to understand personalities and that's that's about it so i don't know what intrigue is coming i don't have any idea yeah. but that's that's one and then the other one i'm going back to old faithful here i i decided to start mistborn era 2 uh by brandon sanderson it starts with a book called the alloy of law mm. so get this here's here's another one of these little tangent brandon sanderson things he never intended to write this book 
or the the three books that follow it. So this Mistborn Era two is is four books long. He just finished his drafts on book four, so that'll be coming out next fall, and he'll have four books in this in this particular period. He never intended to write them. Uh, Mistborn Era two was always a thing in his head, but it was going to be uh, kind of set in a nineteen eighties technology for his fantasy world. This one takes place more in like the turn of the century, you know, almost Wild West uh, setting of his Mistborn world. You know, the first one feels somewhat London Dickensian, but also medieval, uh, that first Mistborn trilogy. This one's a, a Western. So it's really fun how he takes these different settings for his world and for his the development of, of what's going on in his bigger stories. Wow. But he never intended to write it. He was writing the Wheel of Time books and wanted a little bit of a diversion, so he thought he'd write a short story about this these characters in this one. Lo and behold, turned into a novel, which lo and the lo and behold then uh, developed into a whole trilogy that follows wow. it that he's just finishing uh, ne- next year, and then he'll move on to some other things. So that's the way he works, you know, just accidental novels. Oh, and with the with books. Uh, two and three. So this is book one, the Alloy of Law. Books two and three, he had, because he finally buckled down and said, "I'm doing the Wheel of Time," it dedicated, and he had his own books, uh, other series that he's working on. When he went back to start writing book two, he realized I may need to write book three as well, so that this all works. And because I'm having a bit of a hard time here, so when he came out and said, "Hey, book two's coming out," oh, and book three's ready too. Oh, <laughs> So he came out with them in pretty close succession for for readers. That's that's why he's pretty popular, you know, among people that just want to laugh yeah. it up, like like me. That's and- impressive. <laughs> and somewhere George R. R. Martin is like gritting his teeth. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to try your hand at to finalizing my sequence Seriously. here? You did a good job with Robert Jordan. Yeah. You seem to be doing a good job with yours. He's got uh, here. You he's go. got the money. Martin's <laughs> got the money. Maybe he should like hire him as the ghostwriter and just like get that yeah. get that monkey off his back. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been fun. It's, it's, it's just a, it's, it's a lark, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just a fun Western, but he's, he is peppering in. I mean, it was intended as a short story, but, and so it's, it's not even as big and long as his usual novels, but he's peppering in the things that keep me going that are connected to the other worlds and all that, like I've mentioned to you before. And it's, man, I don't know. It sounds fun. like it. It keeps me up late at night. Yeah, well, that's what reading should be. I mean, that's that kind of puts the fun back into it. Of yeah. you know, you don't, you probably don't have the flashlight under the covers, or maybe you do. But I like that whole idea of just sneaking yeah. some time, like we've talked about. Yep, it is. It's a lot of fun to have that that going on. They're just very. We've talked about this maybe a little bit. There are various pleasures with reading and with books. They, I feel like sometimes when we get into a personality or a way we like to read we lock ourselves into a certain type of joy with reading. You know, it kind of has to be deep. Or even, and I get these, even the writing has to be superb. Well, I don't know. There are different things authors do well and different ways to to enjoy them. And sometimes a good lark is is a pretty valid way to spend some time. For sure. Anyway. No, I agree. That's fun. <laughs> I, I like that. For me, for sure. Yeah. No, I'll have to add that one to the list. Um, and then also, like I've said, with my kids, like I just went to the library the other day and my eldest had been complaining with school and work and everything. He hadn't had much time to go to the library or pick out books and he was running low, which I said, that's not true in our house. You're never 
running low of books, but, <laughs> but um, I just got a stack. I, I, you talked about how that bookseller had taken your son under her wing a little bit and pointed out, you know, all these different books. And I, I got a hold of a librarian who did the same thing for me. My son wasn't there, but I just said, here's some books he likes, you know, he's running low. And I came back with, oh man, the stack, it was probably like 15 or 20 books that I just left on his bed waiting for him. When he got home from work, he was so excited. So yeah, <laughs> that's fun. It's, fun. it's just reminded me like when you were talking about those, those big books that are just fun to read, you know, there was a Tad Williams in there and some other books that we've talked about and just opening up all those worlds is, is so much fun. So this could be its own episode, but let's do just a minor diversion. Okay, let's do it. Holiday book shopping for, for your kids. Mm. Do you do that? Do. do you buy them a book? Each we year? do. We've always tried to keep that library or, you know, whether we have library or we, they already have bookshelves in their rooms, but we've always tried to make it a specific thing that we do to get them a book or a series of books or something every holiday, mm-hmm. partially because I want books to continue to be special and I don't want it to be, we have access to so much now with libraries, which is wonderful, yeah. but like we've talked about like when the, the troll or the scholastic book orders came, there was like this waiting for treasure kind of feeling, at least for me. Yeah. And I kind of want to keep some of that where, you know, even though we have access to movies and music and books so quickly these days, yep. I still want it to be special. And so anyway, long story short, yeah, we definitely still do that. Last year we got our, younger son the box set of calvin and hobbs um Hmm. for christmas and man he still reads that maybe probably not literally every day but pretty close and uh so yeah absolutely we still do that how about you guys yes we usually try to get maybe a family box set Mm -hmm. or something like that i think last year i bought the lord of the rings and the um oh what's the kid's name the kind of evil genius Artemis Fowl. That's it. Uh, we bought that box mm-hmm. set, at least what was available. I think there's a few that weren't in it still. And we'll often do something like that because frankly, my kids are hard to purchase books for. They're they're sometimes resistant for things that we, we get right. for them. Uh, even if we think they're going to like them, sometimes they don't start or they're, I don't know, maybe they feel pressure to like them. And so they don't start. I, I don't know. Maybe we messed something up years <laughs> ago. It's deep seated into their psychology now. And It'll never, never be the same, but we still want to do things like that for them. And so I did set, we sat down the other night and said, okay, let's, let's figure something out. I want to get them a special book. I don't care if they end up liking it. Like, that's not the point. I want to try and get them something I think they'll like that they hopefully can recognize the thought Mm -hmm. that went into it. But, uh, I'm pretty excited about the the books we got. One of them, I got a box set of those Lee Bardugo Smoke and Bone mm, books, mm-hmm. the Smoke and Bone. Tri- I haven't read it. I don't know, but it seems perfect for him. Nice. Um, I think he'll be excited about the the set. Um, for my oldest, who tends to be very hard, he likes funny books, and he does like it when we read to him. Mm. Uh, he loved the Wayside School books, and that's something he would we would catch him sitting down and reading. But otherwise, he doesn't. He doesn't read very often. He might read for five minutes before bed if he has a book. Uh, But it struck me that he could probably do some Terry Pratchett and and Discworld. And so we bought him Mort, the first book on the Grim Reaper, you know, on death. And I'm really hopeful that that opens up some, some things for him. I mean, he's a good reader. He likes it and he likes the stories. I just have a hard time knowing exactly what to get him next. Right. 
um, we, we'll go to the library a lot and get books and we'll bring them home and they'll, they'll sit unread and we take them back. And, um, you know, I don't know, don't know how to deal with no. that. Uh, but th- then the youngest one, we got him a couple of, of funny, uh, books. I can't remember the names and the, the, our third one is also pretty tricky. He likes, he likes puzzles. He likes mysteries. He likes science and space and all of that. And I actually sitting here right now, can't remember which book we, I think it's called Nook and Cran, Nooks and Crannies or something like that. It's kind of a mystery. There were a whole bunch of fun options that we were wondering for him, but ended up getting, getting that one. And so I'm excited that package should be getting here. We'll, we'll wrap it up That's and great. we'll wrap up the, the, the presents and, and put them under the tree and we'll see how it yeah. goes because it's always been a reading uh, time, you know, Christmas days afterwards. You don't always want to be playing with toys. Yep or video games or anything like that. I want to sit down and read by the tree or something yeah. like that. No, I'm so. with you. And one thing I'm sure you've noticed this, I definitely have is sometimes you'll have those books, like you said, that you get them and maybe they don't hit it off right away. But one thing that I've noticed about having just books around the house, and I may have mentioned this before is just maybe it's a month later, maybe it's a year later. I mean, there's been cases where even three or four years after we bought this book that we thought was a bust, all of a sudden uh-huh. I'll walk in and one of them is just sitting there reading it and they love it. So it's one of the valuable things I think about just giving them lots of options. Cause you never know what mood will strike them or just some curiosity, something about the cover or whatever it is. You, you never know. Uh-huh. But yeah. Well, that's fun. I think it's important. Did I ever, t- did, did I ever tell you about my kids and citizen King? You did. The Animaniacs? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I love that. I still love that. I love that story. And we're getting the uh, criterion. I, I I should be here sometime that I'm getting a review copy of their new UHD release of Citizen oh, nice. Kane. And I thought I should give them my copy of Citizen Kane, the old one that they would sit and look and read and say, there it is. There it is. There's Citizen Kane. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they care so much about the movie, but there's that, that same shelf. Oh, yeah, you know? <laughs> absolutely. I think you should. I love that idea. All right. Well, thanks for the little diversion. Hopefully it's still topical for many listeners as, as we're approaching the, the, the holidays, but let's get to Emily Dickinson then. And again, neither one of us would ever want to suggest for even a second that we are experts in Emily Dickinson, or I would say even that we are, let's just put it this way, knowledgeable in any deep way about Emily Dickinson's life, biography, even about her poetry. I mean, we've both read a lot of her stuff. I've read it a few times in my life. I still don't know if I've ever read every single one of her, you know, 1800 poems because I dip into these collections and I'll read lots at a time and then move on and then come back to it. And I probably have missed a few, but also there's a lot going on in them and a lot of different views, different views about how they relate to her life or who she was. And I have no way of talking about most of that. I probably don't even know a lot of the ideas. Right. (laughs) So we're kind of here today, and I hope listeners will be on board to talk about what our poetry means to us, where we are at in our lives, where we are at with our experience with her poetry, not as, hey, listeners, here is a poet we love and think you also read, here's why, here's here's where she's strong, here's where she's not, here's, no, I, you know, we're not going to be able to do that, uh, but I think we've still got a lot to say because I, I I think her poetry is so rich that you can be someone who simply stumbles upon it, yeah, and 
falls into a, a beautiful world, a complicated world, a haunting world, um, maybe a hopeful world <laughs> at the end of it all. And your life is enriched, whether you know about the person and the, all the circumstances of writing these or not. Now, clearly some of her biography is very interesting. We'll probably you know, mention the bits that stand out to us a little bit, but mostly this is about, uh, like I said, our our experience with her and where we are right now. And I hope we keep going to some extent or another, even though we're recording this episode and our, our homework in a way is, is done, but hopefully our relationship with her is not, and we'll be able to keep on going. So I, I just kind of wanted to, to, to mention that as we get into it, because I, I don't want people to be disappointed or have high expectations coming here and thinking, Oh, this is how I'm going to pass my Emily Dickinson <laughs> exam. Or these guys are going to talk about it and I can write my thesis on this now. Don't do that. please don't do that. (laughs) I sometimes worry because I get a ton of students writing me about Alice Munro and I'm like, do you guys know who I am? (laughs) Yeah. No. (laughs) It's because I've written a lot of stuff about her. Doesn't mean that any of it is right. Right. (laughs) Or uh, that there's any authority behind it. But yeah, similar with Emily Dickinson here. Let's, uh, but, but, but what, what has been... your general experience with her. I think you mentioned, because I'm the one who suggested her, that you might be a little wary because you felt like you didn't really have a good uh, grasp on her through your life or, or you hadn't really delved in ever before. It's more something you wanted to yeah, do. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think she's on your bucket list, she right? Is. Did we did we did we check off a, a bucket we list did. to an to extent? To an extent, for sure. Awesome. Yeah, no, I think I think it was during our Cormac McCarthy episode where you had talked about how, you know, episodes ending in a five, we're going to touch on a specific author. And mm-hmm. I think one of the things you had said in that introduction was basically there will be times where both of us will be, you know, pretty well versed in an author. There will be times where one of us is pretty well versed in an author and there'll be times where we neither one of us really know and we just want to explore. And in this particular case, I definitely think, at least in my case, I am coming into this pretty fresh um despite being you know a lifelong reader and an english major i didn't really have hardly any background at all with dickinson surprisingly i, I had read a few of her poems in classes over the years of course and and on titles of books. yeah absolutely well that's the thing is she's everywhere i mean she's such a cultural icon and not all of it accurately but like she's one of those people that you can't live in the world and not at least be aware of her you know and so I think other than that, though, I mean, I really did not have a lot of background. I had heard, uh, you know, a few of the the famous poems and read through them in class and everything. But I've really enjoyed this just from the fact of coming into it. We've talked about how reading is a journey for me with Dickinson. I mean, it was like basically first step in, you know, follow the yellow brick road and see where it takes you. Um, so we can talk a little bit more about our experiences over the past month or so reading this. But yeah, as far as a general introduction... I was about as new and as much of a novice as you could possibly be. So I would say if there's any listeners out there who are in the same boat, who haven't, you know, even really read her before, or don't know where to start. Yeah. You know, I'm right there with you. And, and based on my experience, I would say, you know, go for it. Cause it's been wonderful. Well, good. And my experience really isn't that much deeper. I don't think I did read her in high school. And the reason why it stands out to me so much is, first off, it was those were like thunderclasp days, you know, just those were good times in class. I really enjoyed um, Emily Dickinson's poems, but I think we spent a day, mm-hmm. maybe two, on her poetry. 
So what did we read? You know, maybe the five or six of the main ones. And the reason it really stands out to me, as I was saying a second ago, this was the only American woman writer that I ever read in class. And that was an American literature class. The only wow. one. I know we never read any other ones. I didn't read Sarah Orne Jewett. Um, I did not read Edith Wharton. I didn't read Willa Cather. I didn't read any number of other American women authors in that class. And it's a shame. I loved the class, but talk about here's a, a mind that's ready to open up and who's told these are the best books. What do you, you know, what do you start to assume about uh, women authors right. and such? So I am glad that she was in it, but I'm also, I think about this all the time. You know, that was, that was, you know, several decades ago now um, in high school, maybe things have changed, but uh, I felt a poverty of uh, when it came to my knowledge of women writers. And I, and I took an English. So that was my American literature class when I was a junior. The next year I took, um, you know, more of a, a British um, literature, English literature class. And again, no Jane Austen. Nope, we didn't. No George Eliot. Nope. None of the many others, you know, and, and not only that, but 20th century women writers, ugh, not even, not even on the, you know, the horizon. Yeah. And so I'm thrilled that I had Emily Dickinson because I hope that it, it set me up to, to have not just a completely blinkered view of the state of literature over the past centuries. Um, but to, to say some of my favorite days in class were from her. And then in college, I had a, another American literature class where we did read, you know, uh, women authors, and I had a really good professor. And I'm going to bring it up later on, but he 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 showed to us how Emily Dickinson's uh, knowledge of like hymns and meter played a role into her structure of her poems to an extent. I mean, she was always a bit of an iconoclast, and you know, if if it didn't fit her her ultimate metaphor, she was going to throw out rhyme altogether to make something even more powerful, you know, and, but at the same time, she did, she does have that. And he would have us, uh, well, not seeing it. He, he had some students prepare some musical pieces from her work using traditional, you know, Christian mm -hmm. hymns. And it was awesome. Someone playing the, the violin and the piano and someone singing, uh, using Emily Dickinson's poetry, and that was a really fun way to learn about these. He didn't spend time saying, you know, what is this about? What is this? What is her, her ultimate riddle? You and I had a, a brief conversation with my wife before we, we signed in. And her, her, her insight was, you, you heard it better than I did because I already had my headphones in. But what did, what did she say? She basically <laughs> said, you know, that in a lot of ways, Emily Dickinson had been ruined for her as being taught in class because so many teachers act like there is a right and a wrong answer to poetry. Like you are searching for, I mean, I'm paraphrasing what she said, but basically you are searching for the right way to read it rather than just letting somebody love it and experience it in their own way because poetry is so personal. Yeah. And I would think especially the poetry of Emily mm -hmm. Dickinson, which in doing research for this episode, I mean, you could look at a poem or two and knowledgeable people. And I think the most knowledgeable recognize there are a lot of different ways to read this and to interpret this in her biography and in her life and in all of these different things. But that, yeah, she has riddles and, and all of that's part of the fun, but have some fun just having it be a riddle still, yeah. you know, 
The point of it is not necessarily always to crack it. It's to ponder it and to experience it and to um, creep up on it <laughs> little by little or to be completely lost in it. I think Emily Dickinson would, uh, you know, would love that kind of stuff. I agree. I had um, heard somebody talking about, they weren't talking about poetry, but they were talking about complicated literature the other day. And they were saying how sometimes people do themselves a disservice, whether it's a big complicated novel, or I think it applies well to poetry, where you are trying to find what is the meaning or how can I wrap this up with a bow? And they said, if you were listening to a song, for example, or other forms of art, you would never do that. You you let it wash over you. And it's an experience. And every time it might be a little different, you may never actually get to any kind of conclusion, but it's just you immerse yourself in it. And I think that is definitely mm-hmm. something as I was reading these poems at the beginning, I, I think I was probably trying too much to s- figure out what it means and how should I interpret this or what was she getting at here? And then as I read through page after page of these poems, you start to realize like that is not what's going on here. Um, you you, you kind of just, like I said, wash over you is, is the best way I can think of to say it. Um, yeah. So anyways, yeah, it's been quite the experience. <laughs> well, let's talk about your experience a little bit over the last few few months then as we've been preparing for this. I mean, c- even coming into it this time, Emily Dickinson poems that read like riddles sometimes, mm-hmm. poems about death, mm-hmm. poems about nature, poems about madness. Did that ring did that bear out for you? What were some surprises? What um what was your experience coming to know her um against your preconceived notions? Yeah. It was fascinating. I think originally I had this idea because we have been planning for this episode for, you know, at least a month, if not a little bit more. And I had this idea in the beginning, partially probably from a little bit of an inferiority complex, just feeling like I didn't know much about her. I was thinking maybe I'll just try to like sit down and, and over the next month or two, just read through every single poem. Um, and so I tried to do that. I started at the beginning of that big, complete poems that we have, and I was reading my way through but then I started to realize I was, I was pushing, I was doing it in the wrong spirit. It was like an assignment. I, I need to get through this, you know? And so I, I ditched that whole idea. I, I, mm-hmm. I made it through the yeah. beginning. I'm glad yeah. you did. <laughs> well, that's just not the way to do it, obviously. But, you know, it was just something I, I got into that mindset. So what was interesting about that, though, is that I did read probably the first hundred pages of this collection, you know, straight through. And you can kind of see the maturity because the way that it's organized is chronological roughly as much as they could make it, you know, sense of it. Um, And so it was interesting because she started out with some of these kind of very, I wouldn't say they're immature because they're still amazing, but like Valentine's and some of these little things that maybe you can see a little bit of her youth and she's trying things out. And then as you read along, it's so interesting to see the maturity of the writing, the maturity of the themes, some of the darkness that starts to enter into it. Um, so I thought that was one thing, you know, that was pretty fascinating. And again, coming out of this feeling of not really knowing that much about her, I ex- actually ended up getting from the library a book called These Fevered Days by Martha Ackman. And so, you know, it was just another way for me to kind of get a little bit more of an idea about Emily Dickinson's life. Um, and in this particular book, Ackman takes these 10 episodes throughout her life. And she kind of uses that as a lens to look at, at the way things go. So, you know, there's like a consequential meeting she has with one of her friends or, you know, sickness in her family or the day she dies. There's these little 10 kind of signposts that she, she looks mm-hmm. at. 
Um, so, you know, that helped me a little bit. I'm glad I read that and I would recommend that other people dip into it. But, um, you know, more and more, I just kept coming back to the poems themselves because I think the biography is interesting and, and I do want to touch on some parts of it that I find especially interesting. But like you were saying earlier, it's not necessary to understand these poems. You know, it, it adds some insight, but just like a modern day author, you know, at least for me, I'm more interested in the work and what they present on the page. And sometimes there's a biographical detail that adds something to it. But, you know, I, I also think that there's just a different way to, to approach it and just let, let the poems speak for themselves. So, yeah, that's kind of yeah. just a little bit of my experience over the last month. It's kind of an interesting point you make, though. As authors recede into the past, we tend to really valorize or at least uh, dig into their biography for understanding. But I'm sure it's out there, but I know nothing about Mary Oliver and her biography. Right. But I've read a lot of her books and adore them. Uh, Louise Gluck, you know, I, I don't know. She won the Nobel Prize. Yeah. I'm sure that didn't, you know, play a big role in, in my enjoyment of her poetry because I'd read it a lot before that, but even afterwards. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe in a, in a, you know, a few decades, that will be a central part of learning about their work. But, right. but you certainly can just enjoy it without knowing. And a lot of people didn't know anything about Emily Dickinson. You know, she had died before her poems were published. Um, the, her, her friend, you know, the, the correspondence she had with the publisher is so mm-hmm. interesting to me. And he seems to genuinely like her and, and want more of her poetry. He just doesn't have the first clue what to do with yeah. it. And so he never publishes it until, you know, that after she dies, it, it, it comes out through help of her family and such. But, you know, some, some part of her seems a little disappointed. Another part of her seems to, to recognize this is simply superior. Right. <laughs> I've transcended what's going on and I'm okay with that. You know, she seemed to be a little bit aware of that. And I think that that's all really interesting stuff, but, uh, but yeah, you know, most people just stumbled on these books of poetry and read them and ate them up to the point where they published several more until, yeah, now we have, you know, 1800 of her poems in the book. I think we both read the mm-hmm. same edition, this, uh, the complete poems of Emily Dickinson from back Bay book, Back Bay Books uh, from Little Brown. Yeah. Uh, that's a really good, I, I really liked this this way it's set up. I did and too. I found it very useful. And I like the introduction where it talks about, a little bit about their decisions. Like, Because over the years, there's been so many mm-hmm. different versions of these poems. And even the ones that were published, the few that were published in her lifetime, and even after her death, there were some revisions made to like the dashes that she put in or the line breaks or different things like that. And I like at the beginning of this particular edition that they explain how these were, you know, not created, but how, why they chose the versions they did and how they organized them and all of that. So yeah, it was a great resource. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I will say um, one of the things I did like about that Martha Ackman book though, is she did touch a lot on like her relationship with that editor or with her sister-in-law who had a, you know, a very strong influence. Like she was as close to maybe a personal reader or personal editor as you could get where she would, there would be these back and forths on, on the poetry a little bit, but in the end, Dickinson had such a strong feeling about her poetry that, you know, despite she would take advice from, from, I believe her name was Susan, um, from her sister-in-law, but in the end it would, it would be this strong, powerful feeling that Dickinson has about a particular line or the way a poem would end. I mean, there's one I'll bring up a little bit later where there's two different endings. You may have seen it. And, and it's so fascinating to see what it could have been versus what it became. 
So, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. the, it's definitely, there is value to the biography. I'm not trying to say there isn't. And for somebody who's a fan, books like this are, are very valuable. But I do think sometimes it's so easy to get caught up in the mythos and, and all of these things that you find that you miss the point of what's on the page. And start playing even politics with um, someone who didn't know our world. Right. And I see that sometimes with the exegesis of her mm-hmm. work. Um, well, we did uh, at late, in, late in the hour yesterday tweet out some requests from listeners uh, or for, from friends on Twitter and Instagram and whatnot. Uh, what are some of your favorite Emily Dickinson's poem, Emily Dickinson poems? What are some of your favorite Emily Dickinson memories or things like that, you know, that you'd be happy with the sharing. So we're going to, we're going to pepper in to our conversation today, some of these so that it's not just you and I talking before I do that. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about in our general work up to this point? Um, I think I'm ready to get to the poetry as you, you've told us, let's just do that. Right. No, I think I'm ready for it too. I think I say we just go for it. All right. So the first one here is from our friend Nelson, uh, Nelson Rose on Twitter. And, uh, he, he just shared, um, he just shared, I'm guessing, one of his favorites. I won't say his favorite because I don't know, but he, he shared one. It's uh, the 657, if you have an edition that numbers the poems. And it's I Dwell in Possibility. Um, I think I'm reading this one, right, Paul? I'm red. Yep, you're red. <laughs> All right. I dwell in possibility, a fairer house than prose, more numerous of windows, superior for doors, of chambers as the cedars impregnable of eye and for an everlasting roof, the gambrels of the sky of visitors, the fairest. That's I think you and me, Paul. I think so (laughs) (laughs) today for occupation. This, the spreading wide, my narrow hands to gather paradise. I think that is the perfect poem to start talking about the poems of Emily Dickinson, since I believe that's what she's talking about here. I don't want to be prescriptive, but I love that she seems to be suggesting that this is what my work mm-hmm. is. Possibility, limitless. Numerous windows. The spreading, yep. The spreading wide my narrow hands to gather paradise. Thank you, Nelson, for suggesting that. It was not one that I was going to highlight, and I think it is the perfect one to start talking about her poems in particular. Yeah, I agree. That was the perfect poem to, to kick us off. And so we got another one from our good friend Nisi on Twitter. And she says, uh, reading Dickinson creates a special opportunity to read great critics and practice exegesis. I love a wounded deer leaps highest and Helen Vendler's commentary on it, for example, is invaluable. So again, the number for this one is 181. A wounded deer leaps highest. I've heard the hunter tell. Tis but the ecstasy of death. And then the break is still. The smitten rock that gushes. The trampled steel that springs. A cheek is always redder, just where the hectic stings. Mirth is the mail of anguish, in which it cautious arm, lest anybody spy the blood, and you're hurt, exclaim. So that was another one I did not have on my radar, but I I love that. She says, Mm -hmm. as a little note at the end here, she says, um, Judith Farr highlights the little anthologized It Bloomed and Dropped a Single Noon in her book and its modern pessimism. And now I think of it often in connection with the sink with the sixth extinction. So 
we talked about the nature aspects of her poems and sometimes it's very sweet. There's the one about the snake that's just kind of fun and a little bit silly. <laughs> but I like that Nisi brought up these poems, which have that darker edge and also the human impact on nature. I mean, talk about visionary. You know, there's so many things about Dickinson that are just startling. But the fact that she was looking at nature already and, and pointing out some of these things, you know, it's so powerful and, and amazing that she was already thinking of that. So Nisi, I don't know, we can maybe include some of these links in the show notes that she shared with me about some of the different analysis yeah. that she has gone back to. Um, but I really appreciate her doing that because obviously she spent a lot of time thinking about Dickinson. And, and that's kind of what I'm enjoying about this is hearing different people who ha- are at different stages in their relationship with her. Um, so I look mm-hmm. forward to kind of digging into some of that as well. Yeah. And she sent us pictures of the uh, the commentary from Helen Vendler. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for doing that. Um, that was fascinating to read exactly what I was in the mood yeah. for uh, after reading the poem. Absolutely. So I appreciate that. I might that. just jump in real fast. There's a section. I don't want to read too much from that um, that book that I mentioned, The Fever Days, but there's mm-hmm. a section where she talks about Dickinson and nature. And I'll just read this part really quickly. It says, perhaps most revealing was her description of how it felt to write a poem. Nature, she said, was an inspiration. The impulse to create incurred to her on walks when the sight of a tree or an angle of light would suddenly seize her. At that moment, she simply had to transform what she saw into words, she said, and the urge affected her physically. Quote, a sudden light on orchards or a new fashion in the wind troubled my attention, she explained. A palsy here, the verses just relieve. At those moments, something took hold of her violently. My little force explodes, she told Higginson, and leaves me bared and charred. I thought, wow powerful like my little force explodes and leaves me bared and charred like just the power of that and after just having read that book that poem that nisi uh submitted i i thought that was the perfect time to read that because you could just feel the power of it and and the emotion of of dealing with nature so Mm -hmm. well before i think here in a second we'll get to some of our choices and keep peppering these in but some folks also sent us in just some special little memories. They didn't necessarily uh, highlight a poem. And this one is from Susan Pigman. And she says, one of my happiest literary visit memories is of visiting her home in Amherst years ago. Don't know how it is now, but in those days, the tour guide took you right into her bedroom where you could look out at a view that was pretty much unchanged from her time. Her letters are as original and surprisingly truthful as anything else she wrote. Uh, And then here's a quote, a letter always feels to me like immortality because it is the mind alone without corporeal friend. And then she says, look forward to hearing your thoughts. So thanks, Susan. That's a lot of fun to, to, I've never been to Amherst, but definitely this would be a a destination on my stop. Me too. And that ties right into one more comment we got from our friend on Twitter, Pettipaw, P-E-T-I-P-A-W. And she says, for my 21st birthday, my mom took me to Amherst to visit Emily Dickinson's house. It was such a thrill. At the homestead, I was stunned to find out that all her original furniture and belongings were actually kept at Lamont Library in Cambridge, Mass., where I was living. So that's so cool. Like I've never been to that part of the country at all. Um, But boy, talk about a bucket list. I would love to be able to to visit that someday. All right, Paul, should we take a break from some of the listeners' uh, comments and feedback and hear... One of your poems. How many poems did you pick out to highlight? <laughs> I have us? probably, you know, three to five, depending on how we go. I mean, there's so many that I kept adding them. 
So I have a little uh-huh. bit of flexibility, but yeah, probably three or three or four would be good. Okay, I'll do the same. I I do have five highlighted, but I'll we'll figure okay. it out. We we're I'm looking at the clock. We've got maybe a half an hour here, so let's let's dig okay. in. Yeah, go go ahead, jump into well, one. So tell me tell me why and 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 what it is. Well, you mentioned a little bit earlier, kind of her, it's the religion, and and her views on all of that. I mean in that biography, that was one thing I keep saying that the biography doesn't matter. And then I keep going back to it, but she clearly had a very complicated relationship with the religion that was so prevalent in her town in her school and her family. And so one that I really liked was uh, number 256. So I'll just read that one. If I'm lost now that I was found, shall still my transport be that once on me, those Jasper gates blazed open suddenly that in my awkward gazing face, the angels softly peered and touched me with their fleeces almost as if they cared i'm banished now you know it how foreign that can be you'll know sir when the savior's face turns so away from you so you know i don't pretend to understand everything that's going on in that poem but i think the whole idea of being banished being an outsider um from what I gather, she definitely had a lot of that feeling at different times in her life, you know, especially around the religion aspect of things. So I, I really thought that was powerful. Um, that one is definitely one that stuck with me. Yeah, that might be, or if you're okay, why don't we look at another one that talks a little bit about that sense of identity? And this um, this one was sh- shared to us by Arminati on Instagram. I appreciate this, Arminati. Uh, I'm nobody. Uh, who are you? And and he he made a comment that it, the piece sounds so modern, and to think she wrote it in the mid eighteen hundreds. But it's very short. It's poem number two eighty eight for those who again want to want to do it this way. I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Don't tell they'd advertise. You know how dreary to be somebody. How public like a frog to tell one's name the live long June. To an admiring bog. <laughs> <laughs> so that I think there's a more playful uh, sense of that uh, anonymity and uh, that she again had a complicated relationship with, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, she knew she was brilliant. She knew, you know, she was trying to get her poems out there to an extent. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of it fun. It is fun. I like that, that it's one. fun, but it also maybe I'm the way I look at it, it also has a little bit of a barb to it. Maybe there were some other authors or people mm-hmm. out there that she felt, you know, were putting themselves out there a little bit in the wrong way. So, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but yeah, it's a little it critical. Seemed like it. I don't know. I like that. Yeah, I think so too. Let's see here. And if you don't mind, I'll, I'll share one of mine yeah. now. Um, so this is poem 214. And I love this poem. It talks a little bit about the nature that you were bringing up before. And this is the one that I taste a liquor never brewed from tankards scooped in pearl. Not all the vats upon the Rhine yield such an alcohol inebriate of air am I and debauchee of dew reeling through endless summer days from inns of molten blue when landlords turn the drunken bee out of the foxglove's door when butterflies renounce their drams i shall but drink the more till seraphs swing their snowy hats and saints to windows run to see the little tippler leaning against the sun 
I, I love that imagery of being drunk on on nature and uh, just uh, imbibing it all and in becoming inebriated uh, with it. And this one was, has always been one of my one of my favorites. Uh, when it's probably one of the first ones that we read. Mm-hmm. I think it was to introduce us to not dour, you know, Emily Dickinson, but to some of the fun and uh, and I really I just love this kind of stuff. I mean, that's why I read some of the poems of Mary Oliver a few months ago when we were doing an episode and uh, our nature writing episode. Yeah. So I love that one too. Well, for my next one, you had mentioned that for some reason you've pictured her sometimes as like a, a winter poet, at least in some ways. And there was that quiet. Um, I don't have the number on this one, but the the beginning of it is there's a certain slant of light. Mm-hmm. So I'll start with that one. There's a certain slant of light winter afternoons that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes. Heavenly hurt. It gives us, we can find no scar, but internal difference where the meanings are. None may teach it any, tis the seal despair, an imperial affliction sent us of the air. When it comes, the landscape listens, shadows hold their breath. When it goes, tis like the distance on the look of death. So whew, that one, I think I, I yeah. stumbled on that one because I told you I happy winter. Yeah, everybody. <laughs> but I do think it, man, it captures that, you know, there's the, the, the winter afternoon where I always think of it as like a Sunday, the Sunday night blues kind of thing where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, I know that people have like seasonal, what is it? Seasonal disorder where, you know, there's that very real feeling. Seasonal depression there you go. Yeah. Way, yeah. Where, you know, there's a lot of peacefulness and goodness in the winter, but there's also, you know, there's that melancholy feeling, especially in the afternoons where the light starts to change. And I feel like that poem just really captures that in a really powerful way. So that one stopped me right in my tracks as I was reading it. Yeah, and I think I have that. We'll probably talk about that here in a few weeks when we look forward to the year. One of the reasons that I specifically make a plan in early January for what books I want to read or movies I want to watch or things I want to do over the next few months, not just not the year, but for the next few months, is to get over that sad, mm-hmm. you know, seasonal affective disorder. Uh, because, man, if I don't, it it can be... Uh, it can be kind of rough and I'm a pretty optimistic person, but, um, but we'll talk about that maybe just a little bit more because it's a very real mm-hmm. thing. And I think you're right. This poem, this poem captures it. So the, the next one I want to talk about is 280. And it is, I felt a funeral in my brain and mourners to and fro kept treading, treading till it seemed that sense was breaking through. And when they all were seated, A service like a drum kept beating, beating till I thought my mind was going numb. And then I heard them lift a box and to creak across my soul with those same boots of lead again. Then space began to toll as that all the heavens were a bell and being but an ear and I, the silence, some strange race wrecked solitary here. And then a plank in reason broke, and I dropped down and down and hit a world at every plunge and finished knowing then. Yeah, wow. She, I mean, again, not knowing a ton about her biography in any meaningful way, what a way to talk about some of these complicated issues of 
just mental health. I think this is a very powerful poem about, I mean, a funeral in her brain. Uh, and and oh, the the imagery here, the, the eternal imagery here. I know. Is very powerful. It is. And it brings up something else that somebody had mentioned to us on Twitter, Dominique Elliott. She says, if there is ever a poet who could grab you by the throat with the very first stanza, it was Emily. She says, my life had stood a loaded gun or I felt a funeral in my brain. She makes me think of Webern's music. Every note counts. And so does every silence. I thought that was beautifully put by her. Mm-hmm. And, and she's right. Some of those first lines, like if you're scrolling through, sometimes mm-hmm. they'll organize it by first line as a way to kind of identify, you know, in an index. And some of those alone are just so stunning. Well, let's go to this page. Here's a page. This is right around I felt the funeral in my brain. The one right before it starts, tie the strings to my life, my lord. Mm. That's the first line. And then the the next one, tis so appalling, it exhilarates. I mean, these are all things that you kind of want to read more right there. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, maybe not quite as powerful as my life was a loaded gun or I felt the funeral in my brain. But nevertheless, I mean, I, I think there's... I mean, yeah, she never titled her poems, and so we refer to them by either a number. Then there are various numbers. I mean, we're reading the ones that are in this, the complete poems of Emily Dickinson, and I can't remember which method it is. I mean, there are there are a few different ways of of numbering these. Yeah, but they're also known by their first lines. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I felt the funeral in my brain, uh, or hope is um, a thing with feathers. I mean, these are. These are things that we remember because the first lines are so powerful. Mm -hmm. They set you up. Yeah, they really do. (laughs) Well, I mean, we're talking a lot about nature because that just tends to be one of the areas that I'm drawn to, I know. But um, one of the things that really has fascinated me in learning more about her is her role as as an observer of the world. Because, you know, I know that some of the whole um, recluse thing has been a little bit mythologized over time and it's not quite to the extent that people have made it out to be, but there's no denying that she lived most of her life in a very small space. You know, she didn't travel a lot. She spent a lot of her time in that room looking out that window. And I think it appeals to that whole idea. I don't know if you remember on the Robert McFarland discussion we had during our nature writing, but I've been really fascinated with people who focus on one small space or find magic, you know, like in one little spot in their backyard, for example. And so I think she also really appeals to me in that regard, her ability to sit in this room and focus not only on the whole world, but sometimes she would draw in and look at a specific area. So there was one poem I found, which I believe is number 359. It's called A Bird Came Down the Walk. And this is just kind of a fun one, but it kind of sums up that whole idea of her sitting at her window and just looking out and observing the world. So a bird came down the walk. He did not know I saw. He bit an angleworm in halves and ate the fellow raw. And then he drank a dew from a convenient grass and then hopped sideways to the wall to let a beetle pass. He glanced with rapid eyes that hurried all abroad. They looked like frightened beads, I thought. He stirred his velvet head. Like one in danger, cautious, I offered him a crumb, and he unrolled his feathers and rowed him softer home. Then oars divide the ocean, too silver for a seam, or butterflies off banks of noon leap plashless as they swim. I just love that one. Like we've been spending a lot of time the last couple of years feeding the birds and watching the birds. And so I just really liked that. It was, it felt very personal. It was lighter and more playful, but just, you know, a little insight into maybe her as a person, just 
you know, spending some time with nature on a, on a more personal level, not on such a large majestic level. Well, Paul, the next one, um, let's introduce by way of one of, uh, someone who responded to us on Twitter, uh, Dan Johnson, he, uh, posted uh, for us, the brain is wider than the sky. For put them side by side, the one the other will contain with ease, and you beside. The brain is deeper than the sea, for hold them blue to blue, the one the other will absorb as sponges buckets do. The brain is just the weight of God, for heft them pound for pound, and they will differ if they do a syllable from sound. And I want to bring this one into connection with another one that I chose. And then I think that you have more to say on the brain is wider than the sky. <laughs> but um, number 501 is this world is not conclusion. A species stands beyond. Invisible is music, but positive is sound. It beckons and it baffles philosophy. Don't know. And through a riddle at the last, sagacity must go. To guess it puzzles scholars, to gain it men have borne contempt of generations and crucifixion shown. Faith slips and laughs and rallies, blushes if any see, plucks at a twig of evidence and asks a vain the way. Much gesture from the pulpit, strong hallelujahs roll. Narcotics cannot still the tooth that nibbles at the soul. There's something about these two poems, one talking about the power of the brain and the other one talking about the limits of our understanding, you know, the, uh, what we can actually grasp of what this world is. Uh, it kind of reminds me of Hamlet where, you know, there's, there's more um, this world than thy philosophies can, you know, imagine I'm botching that <laughs> quote, but basically you, you, there's a lot more going on than we could ever, would, we could ever believe in. And yet at the same time, the brain is such a powerful thing and can encapsulate so much more than, what its small space should. Yeah. Um, anyway, the what are some of your thoughts on on no, I agree. I, or on that? I one, think anyway? both of them together, especially. I'm glad you combined them because they show a really interesting dissonance that I think comes up again and again within her poetry. And and again, not not to dwell on her bio too much, but like having read that, she struggled throughout her life with just what do I believe, what don't I believe, you know, and all of that, and. And I think it just makes it a really fascinating journey as you read through her poems. You can almost see her struggling in real time with just these ideas and, you know, putting them out there. And it's probably something most people deal with. Like you said, there's so much science and reality and our brains can do so much, but there's so much we don't know. So, yeah, I think it's kind of what we were talking about earlier with that whole idea of just like with poem, poems, you kind of have to let life wash over you sometimes and just admit there are things you just do not know and it's uncomfortable and you spend a lot of time thinking about it. And I, what is the quote in that <laughs> poem? You just said something about the tooth. Yeah. Narcotics cannot steal the tooth that nibbles at the yeah, soul. I mean that right there to me, that's, that's it. That's amazing. <laughs> Um, well, I have one more that I want to talk about, and I'll I'll save it for a little bit. Um, I think we have a few more listeners that gave us some suggestions, and also not sure where where you're at on your particular list, Paul. Yeah, I mean, I I think I can leave you to to read another poem. But what I might do here is one of the the listeners, our good friend Chris Wolak, who is a co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, which is the Book Cougars. 
Um, I imagine a lot of our readers or a lot of our listeners are familiar, but if not, you should check them out. It's a wonderful, um, a wonderful podcast, but I've heard her speak about Emily Dickinson, you know, several different times on their show. And so I reached out to her just to see if she would want to share any thoughts. And she sent this wonderful response, which I'm going to read in, in full because I think it's really good. So she says, I think one of the reasons Emily Dickinson is a poet that I return to again and again is that I studied her intensely for a semester in graduate school a long time ago. And it was my first experience with seeing the reception of a writer over time, how different generations interpreted her according to the poetic and gender expectations of their time and place, or whatever theory they were pushing. To see her presented as everything from a reclusive virgin in white to a raging radical feminist and everything in between was a big eye-opener for me, both in literary studies and life in general. Her poems are just so deeply emotional, and by that I mean full of complex, messy, piercing feelings whether painful or joyful. Even after reading some of her poems hundreds of times, they can still jolt me or give me goosebumps. Sometimes a new interpretation of a poem will pop into my head, and other poems I still do not get. My experience of her poetry is in no way unique, and I think it is this aliveness of her poems that keeps her poetry in both the academic and public eye. And of course, her life is a fascinating mystery as well. I've joked that my favorite Emily Dickinson poem is the last one I read, but there are several that I go back to often. Some lines are embedded in me. The poem that has had the most impact in my life is Because I Could Not Stop for Death. So I'll read that one here. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves, an immortality. We slowly drove. He knew no haste. And I had put away my labor and my leisure, too, for his civility. We passed the school where children strove at recess in the ring. We passed the fields of gazing grain. We passed the setting sun. Or rather, he passed us. The dews drew quivering and chill. For only gossamer, my gown, my tippet, only tool. We paused before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. The roof was scarcely visible, the cornice in the ground. Since then, tis centuries, and yet feel shorter than the day. I first surmised the horse's head were towards eternity. She says, I first read this poem about a year after my father died. I was coming out of the initial shock and numb phase of my grief. And that first line practically seared my brain when I first read it. I truly felt something physical happen inside my head. Those first two lines felt exactly like what happened to my father. He died unexpectedly at 52 in the prime of his life, full of passion and activity, exploring his interests but death stopped for him when death was ready. This poem has given me a strange solace. Those two lines often pop into my head at the strangest times. So whew, I think that is just a great, great view um, into somebody's personal experiences with these poetry. So thank you so much, Chris, for sending that in. And yeah, I think that sums up a lot of what we've been trying to say very eloquently. Very much so. Thanks, Chris. And thanks for that story too. I have a similar, my, my, the last poem that I want to talk about is about death and grief and that strange solace is, is the way you put it is, is kind of a perfect uh, encapsulation. Uh, she wrote a lot about death, whether her own in a way or imagining her own death or dealing with the death of others. Um, we have, I heard a fly buzz when I died. Speaking of great mm. first lines, I love that poem but it isn't the one I want to talk about. The one that I want to talk about is very short 
and it's the bustle in a house, the morning after death. I'll read it here in a second in full, but this is the one I was talking about earlier where I had that professor who had the students kind of prepare arrangements of these poems. And in this one, he had them sing the song with a few different hymns, but the one that stands out to me was How Gentle God's Command. I have no idea who out there knows it, you know, traditional Christian hymn, um, but it's the you know, da 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 da, and um, this is uh, the the same meter as this poem, and so hearing this sung with that in the background of my mind, you know, something religious and um, talking about gentility of God, was a strange amalgamation because the poem itself has whispers of hope and eternity, but also uncertainty and is the bit of the numbness of grief and the bit of the busyness. And this is how it goes. It says, and if you want to picture the picture, me singing it, I'm not not going going to to be able to do that, but (laughs) the bustle in a house, the morning after death is solemnness of industries enacted upon earth. The sweeping up the heart and putting love away we shall not want to use again until eternity. I adore this poem, and I think some of it's from that special experience. This professor was a was became you know a good friend of mine, and he himself died not too long ago. And it's just you know one of those memories of um, poetry or of words, kind of piercing me a little bit. I dealt with a lot of grief over the years before I first um, encountered this. Um, very, very fresh on, on some of them. And so recognize some of the feelings here, the, the bustle, you know, the, the way it's like, holy cow, this is still going on. In fact, we've got things to do in order to deal with this, the funeral and all of that, but also the, um, the, the sweeping up the hearts and not wanting to, to use it again, putting love away. It's just such a fascinating, um, powerful, uh, poem and uh, amidst many, and I, I wouldn't even say it's like her best or most profound or the cleverest wordplay or the best little riddle. It's just one that, again, as we've talked about, touched me personally and therefore is in- exceptionally meaningful to me. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I think what you just said about a lot of the poems that we've mentioned today are the ones that you know about or you hear about, and they're her masterpieces, if you want to say that, and the ones that you know come up often. One of the things that you just mentioned that I've enjoyed about this is stumbling onto these other ones that I'm sure at this point, you know, she's well enough known that there's not any like hidden gems that nobody's heard of or probably analyzed. (laughs) But I've loved just on my own personal journey through this book, stumbling onto the ones about the afternoon light or the little Robin eating the Mm -hmm. worm in the middle of the path that like, as far as I know, aren't ones that are are well known. And, And so it's almost like you're discovering these little these little gems on your own. So that's been really interesting. And just the, the personal ways that they can hit you that you touched about, talked about and so many of our different listeners have sent in is just what's so amazing about her. Well, Paul, do you have any others you want to, to talk about or, or share? I, I've tapped the one. I mean, I could go on for, I know there are 1800 of these and, and I feel like I'm trying to be, um, meaningful but short and it's that's always a a delicate balance yeah what are you any others that you want no i think we can leave it there because i think that's 
a good note to end on. I mean, I will just mention that if somebody has some time, if they want to explore a little bit more, one that I would recommend looking at is Safe in Their Alabaster Chambers, which was one that she wrote um, around the time of the Civil War. And it's again about death. And I think one of the things that was so fascinating about this one is there's two different versions of it. And so the second half of the poem in the two different versions is completely different. And this is one where it sounds like there was a little bit of pushback between her and her sister-in-law of, of which version was preferred. And I like that they have stuck with as far, not that there's a final version, but it sounds like the version that's listed second in this collection we have um, is the one that Emily Dickinson preferred. And it's much more mysterious and it's much more, to me at least, it, it is very much everything we've been talking about enigmatic and, and and majestic. So it's the one that ends soundless as dots on a disc of snow. So if anybody wants to just spend a little more time, that might be a good place to kind of to dip in and just start to explore more about the way her mind is so fascinating. And that one, I think just seeing the difference between those two, there's a, I, should I just go ahead and read it? Oh, sure. Let's Instead of just being all cagey <laughs> about it. Um, okay. So safe in their alabaster chambers. Untouched by morning and untouched by noon, sleep the meek members of the resurrection, rafter of satin and roof of stone. So here's where, this is the first version of the second half. Light laughs the breeze in her castle above them, babbles the bee in a stolid ear, pipe the sweet birds in ignorant cadence. Ah, what sagacity perished here. And then I'll read the whole second version just so you can, I won't break up the flow. Safe in their alabaster chambers, untouched by morning and untouched by noon, lie the meek members of the resurrection, rafter of satin and roof of stone. Grand go the years in the crescent above them. Worlds scoop their arcs and firmaments row, diadems drop and dodges surrender, soundless as dots on a disk of snow. So, whew. Just the idea of, of these these tombs and, and in this particular lens, I think it was talking about, you know, people who had died during the Civil War. But just seeing the difference between those two, what could have been, a you know, still a very powerful, but maybe a little bit more of a conventional poem. And then her, it sounds like she edited and, and rewrote these things constantly throughout her life. And, and to see where she ended up on that one, to me, it just has this very, it's almost like the stars looking down on the earth. And this, there's like a, a coldness to it and kind of a a mystery that I think is really chilling, but also really powerful. So that was the other one that really, you know, I mean, like I said, I could go on forever, but that one, I would have felt bad if I hadn't at least mentioned that one. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you read both of them too. Surely us reading these poems is not the optimal experience for many people. Um, Though I enjoy reading them out loud and I've enjoyed hearing you read them out loud. But again, it kind of speaks to the let them wash over and then go back to it, mm-hmm. back again. There's there's so much to to be found within. But Paul, this this actually went better than I was hoping it would. I've really enjoyed talking about Emily Dickinson's poetry with you today, uh, very much so. It's it just I don't know. It's exactly uh, well, like I say, it's even better than I than I hoped it would be. So thanks so much for doing that and for your preparation on it, for your willingness to indulge uh, in my my whim a few months ago. Um, it was on a Sunday when I thought, 
we should do Emily yeah. Dickinson. So I guess, you know, just get into that Sabbath state of That's mind. Right. No, thank you. I mean, I am so thrilled. I, I've told you many times in the weeks leading up to this that I was honestly a little intimidated about this particular one just because I've mentioned in the past poetry. I, I don't always know how to talk about it, or at least I don't feel like I do. But man, I'm so glad that you suggested this. I've really enjoyed this experience. And as I said, I've made it partway through that whole collection, but I'm really looking forward to, I'm going to keep it on my bedside table. And this is not by any means the end, even though, like you said, our quote unquote homework is done. I'm going to just keep that out and and continue to, to dip into this. And I'm going to look at some of the different analyses and things that people have sent to us and just continue to explore. So yeah, thank you. It's been a wonderful experience. Out of curiosity, do you mark in any particular way so that you can go back or are you just reading a poem and moving on and then maybe you'll go back? Uh, what's your what's your method? Yeah, I started out just kind of moving along and that was in the stage where I told you I think I was kind of just putting my head down a little too much. And then when I have started slowing down and, and skipping around, yeah, I've started, um, I usually will take a little sticky note and stick it on certain pages. And then- yeah. I don't often write in my books, which is something that I've actually started to consider amending my ways because I I kind of think maybe I should start writing in my books. And so with these poems in particular, I haven't gone crazy yet, but just a star or an exclamation point or underlining, I, I've started mm-hmm. doing that because I don't want them, the ones that are standing out to me, I, I for one thing, I, I don't want them to get lost in the shuffle of just these thousands of poems. And then on the other side of it, I plan on revisiting these poems throughout my life. And I think one of the fascinating things we've talked about with literature, and especially I could see with poetry like Emily Dickinson, is the way they hit you at different moments in your life. Mm-hmm. And so I, I that, that's kind of been my thought process right now. How about you? How have you approached that? Well, so in my, my parents bought me um, a collection of her poems a long time ago and I actually don't know if I have it anymore but I remember going through and putting a star Mm -hmm. by the ones I liked and then realizing I need two stars by this one (laughs) oh this one's a three how am I you know how do I adequately um, differentiate so I can go back but that was um, one that I wrote a lot in nothing profound more just markers for me but this time through I I did walk through with my sticky notes and I want to go back now. And now that we're, I'm not just highlighting something sticky to to refer back to for this podcast. I want to start making this particular thing almost like, you know, it's as thick as a good Bible. Yeah. <laughs> I want to start marking it with highlighters and uh, crayons and pen and, and, and let it become my, um, my book of Emily Dickinson poetry more than it already is, mm-hmm. but you know, something that people could go to and, and recognize as, as mine, if they ever wanted yeah. to. I think so, that's great. I love um, that. It's so personal. And I love, like, like you said, it's, it's almost like a Bible where you can go in and mark it and underline it and mm-hmm. return it, return to it throughout your life. So that sounds like a great plan. Well, let's end with some recommendations. Um, I do have one that's on somewhat on topic. Okay. What do you have? I'm a, you're always the one who does that to me while I'm like, Oh, I'm going to talk about this, uh, this, uh, ch- you know, Taiwanese, uh, action <laughs> film from the 19. 19- <laughs> well, well do I don't have, have anything that's specifically on topic, but it's one that I've thought about bringing up for the last couple of episodes. And I, I'm going to just do it because I don't want it to fade away. Um, and, and mm-hmm. I don't want to end up missing it, but I mentioned months ago at this point that I was visiting Mr. Krasna Horkai. And so um, I oh, yeah. read the book Satin Tongo, 
um, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And then I did end up going and what for our English listeners who are in stores, it's Satan Tango is what it, it looks is. like. I mean, there may be a different way, but I think that's a deliberate play on Satan and yeah, the dance. Exactly. So. And I've heard it pronounced Satan Tango and Shatan Tango, and I don't know, you know, which one is correct, but I read that book and was blown away by it. And I know that you've read it as well. But then I did end up going and watching Bellatar's (laughs) seven and a half hour film. And I will admit, I did not watch it in one sitting. But boy, (laughs) if I could just recommend, I know that's quite a, a recommendation, but if anybody can find the time, maybe it's over this holiday break or at any other time to set aside the time to, to read the novel and watch the film Oh, wow. What an experience. It was just so immersive. It was unlike anything that I've ever read and seen before. And I don't know. I, I don't really even know what to say about it. But other than if, if you can find the time to do it, you should absolutely do it. Um, I've mentioned Chris Via a couple of times in his Leaf by Leaf YouTube books. And, mm-hmm. and just by coincidence, I didn't know his video came out after I had just finished doing that. But he actually did something similar where he read the book and then watched the film and he recorded some very interesting thoughts on it as well. So I'll, I'll make it kind of a three-way recommendation, read the book, watch the film, and then check out Chris Villa's thoughts on it as well. Cause it's just the kind of thing where it's such a, a large experience. I know it's one of those things that I'm going to remember my entire life. And I think it's too fresh and raw right now for me to be able to say anything, especially coherent, <laughs> but it's, it's powerful. I remember when you said you'd finished it. And that's all you said on Twitter. And I'm like, oh, did he did he like it? I don't want him to feel bad if he didn't, but I have to know. Paul, stop stop beating about the bush. Uh, you know, did you enjoy, did you like it? So I was glad you did. Now but but I do have a follow-up question for you. Do you have any interest in and when will you do this if you do in reading the melancholy of resistance and then watching its adaptation, the work Meister harmonies. Oh, I similar experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we get into, a, in a future episode talking about 2022 reading, that was actually one of the things I think I'll mention. I absolutely oh. plan on reading the melancholy of resistance, but to be honest, I did not know about the, the film adaptation. Yeah. The work Meister harmonies, uh, Bellatar long. I don't know which is my favorite. Suffice it to say, it's like trying to pick your favorite like Zabal mm-hmm. book or something like that. I don't know. I they all affect me in different ways and very powerfully. Similar with these um, these two, Sutton Tango and uh, the Melancholy of Resistance, are just two of my favorite reading experiences. Which is weird when you know how dark and and gloomy and rainy and muddy yeah. and pessimistic and hopeless these are when that's just not who I am, but for whatever reason, these were very powerful experiences. Supremely done. Yeah. The beginning, the beginning of the melancholy of resistance, just the first few, you know, I, I don't remember how many pages it is, but maybe 20 or 30 on a train. Holy cow. Holy yeah. cow. So, well, anyway. I, I know we need to move on to yours, but one more quick question. Have you read, cause I, my understanding is that there's four books that are roughly that Krasnohorka considers to be a series and it's those two. And then I believe, is it War and War? War and War. I have not read War and War yet. I'm looking at my shelf and right here. And then the here. Baron. Um, I don't have Baron, it in front of me. 
Baron Wankheim's Homecoming. Yeah. So are you planning on eventually Again. reading all four? Do you oh, think yeah. you would ever consider going back and like, would you just start on number three or would you start over? Or how do you think you would do that? I, I do have intentions of reading all of them. I have mm-hmm. them all. Honestly, my, my thought right now is I just want to go back and reread uh, Melancholy of Resistance and Sutton yeah. Tango. Um, because those were such powerful. I don't even care if I, if I never get to read the other ones, I want to do those two again, um, is my thought on that. But yes, I do want to read them. Absolutely. No, I would, we'll have to chat. Maybe we can figure something out. Cause I, I, I definitely (laughs) plan on melancholy of resistance is, is high on my list of things to read maybe next year. Gotcha. All right. Well, I'll do mine. I'll bring us back a little bit from the, the, the gloom of crushing yeah, muddy hungry <laughs> and i'll talk about billy collins the poet um that i may have mentioned uh, early 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 on in our podcast uh, time together because it was national poetry month when we started recording and i do love the poetry of billy collins which sometimes can sound really playful and simplistic and strange but there's something to it as well that i just uh, love and my favorite of his collections is picnic lightning and the reason that I'll recommend it today is it contains a poem that I feel bad for, like, part of me thinks, well, that, that's a little bit risque. Maybe I shouldn't, uh, shouldn't post pictures of it on Twitter or shouldn't read it to my kids. Right. Or, <laughs> but I do love it. It's taking off Emily Dickinson's clothes. This is not a not safe for work uh, listeners, just in case we're going to keep our you know, clean rating will, on, uh, iTunes. I, yes, I hope so. It does talk about, uh, uh 19th century undergarments. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> First, her tippet made of tulle, easily lifted off her shoulders and laid on the back of a wooden chair and her bonnet, the bow undone with a light forward pool. Then the long white dress, a more complicated matter with mother-of-pearl buttons down the back, so tiny and numerous that it takes forever before my hands can part the fabric like a swimmer's dividing water and slip inside. You will want to know that she was standing by an open window in an upstairs bedroom, motionless, a little wide-eyed, looking out at the orchard below, the white dress puddled at her feet, on the wide board hardwood floor. The complexity of women's undergarments in 19th century America is not to be waved off, and I proceeded like a polar explorer through clips and clasps and moorings, catches, straps, and whalebone stays, sailing toward the iceberg of her nakedness. Later, I wrote in a notebook, it was like riding a swan into the night, but of course, I cannot tell you everything. The way she closed her eyes to the orchard. How her hair tumbled, free of its pins. How there were sudden dashes whenever we spoke. What I can tell you is it was terribly quiet in Amherst that Sabbath afternoon. Nothing but a carriage passing the house. A fly buzzing in the in a window pane so I could plainly hear her inhale when I undid the very top hook and eye fastener of her corset, and I could hear her sigh when finally it was unloosed, the way some readers sigh when they realize that hope has feathers, that reason is a plank, that life is a loaded gun that looks right at you with a yellow eye. Wow. 
I love that poem. It's playful and at the same time injects some of that sudden burst of emotion of like, well, this is serious all of a sudden Mm -hmm. and respectful and plays with our notion of who she was. You know, the, 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 the general stereotypes of Emily Dickinson, while I think maybe making her still enigmatic that we can't fully, fully grasp. And, but I, I love that poem. I read it all the time. Beautiful. And I think it also shows like what we were talking about earlier, just the impact that she continues to have, the amazing cultural impact that she continues to have. And I was thinking about what you said about how hardly any women were included in your courses when you were in high school. Mm-hmm. That's obviously a travesty, but I, it also speaks to the power of her work that there was only one. Yeah. And despite all of these other cultural things and everything else that she was up against, she still broke through and she was the one that they featured. I mean, that says a lot about her work right there. Yep. Yep. Understood where you're coming from with that too. A travesty, but, but poetry Mm. by, by her, you know, that that's what our teacher chose Mm -hmm. to, to go over the, or the curriculum did. It shows her power, I guess. All right. Well, Paul, thanks again for your time today. Listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. We will be back here in a in a week or two. I can't remember what our schedule is exactly, but it'll be some some fun uh, end of year discussions. Yeah, looking forward to as it. we as we look back and then start to look forward into twenty twenty two. So we'll hope you'll, you'll we hope you'll be back, and we hope to hear from yeah, you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can find Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month, helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a patron at patreon.com mooks. Until next time.